Hey there, fellow entrepreneurs. If you're tired of complicated domain management, I've got the solution for you, Hover.com. Hover makes registering and managing domains a breeze. Their clean interface and hassle-free experience will save you time and frustration. No upsells, no hidden fees, just straightforward domain services. Plus, Hover offers top-notch customer support. Make your life easier. Head over to foxcitiesmm.com hover and simplify your jo- domain journey today. You're listening to Fox City's Murder and Mayhem, your bi-weekly dose of true crime history in a small rural community of Wisconsin. Hey everybody, but welcome back to another episode of Fox City's Murder and Mayhem. I'm Eric. I'm Gavin. And Gavin, we're back again. Feels yes. like we, it's been a while since we did this. It but does. I, it feels, Fox City's feels like it's been a little while. And well, and we were doing interviews last week too, so it didn't feel like we were doing our normal podcast. Yeah. So. So what do you got for us today? Well, I gotta I gotta say something before we get into this. Oof. Yeah, I know. Public service announcement. Public everybody. service <laughs> announcement. Um, this is not about this is not about my beverage. Um, so, <laughs> since the last Fox City's Murder and Mayhem we recorded, my sister and myself, but my sister, I have to give credit here. Um, we stumbled on a way to get access to more newspapers for free than Ooh. I previously had access to. And I say that because there is no shortage of upcoming Fox City's <laughs> The sister took care of that for you, no problem? Yeah, yeah. So um, just, I've barely kind of begun digging, but just in the little bit that I did, I mean, I didn't even spend an hour I probably found enough stories for the next six months. We're we're fine. Can you uh, <laughs> can you share what is this new resource that you found? I can. I I, I mean, it's not. I didn't, like, I didn't know if it was illegal or something. No, like no, that. no, no, no. It's not a. It's not really a secret. It's just kind of. The, and some people at home like they might know, and they'll be like, "You idiot." <laughs> um, there's two primary places to get newspaper articles online. One is newspapers.com and the other is newspaperarchive.com. Okay. And depending on your library, um, you should have access to one or both of these resources. But the library version only limits, you know, there's certain newspapers that are in there and certain ones that aren't. For whatever reason, the library version does not give you the complete access that a subscription gets you. All okay. right. But here's the thing. <laughs> Newspapers.com has this really dumb thing where if you have a subscription, you can go in there and you can what they call clip an article, right? Mm-hmm. And then that article is publicly searchable. Okay. Don't need a subscription to see it. Now, that part I knew, because sometimes when you do a Google search, like a clipping will come up. What I did not know is that you can actually go to a page, say, for example, I think it's like postcrescent.newspapers.com slash clippings or something. Okay. There's like an actual specific address you can go to, and all the clippings show up. 
Oh, and they're and they're fully searchable because they've they've got had OCR done to them, which means you can actually search the words in the articles. And I didn't know that you could actually search within the database. I've never seen that before. And again, people at home who are better researchers than me are going to be like, you idiot. idiot. <laughs> you idiot. How did you not know this? You should have been doing this for years. Um, but I didn't know. I didn't know you could do it in that broad of a way. I thought you had to specifically be looking for something. So like you go to like the Post Crescent one or Oshkosh, Sheboygan, whatever, whatever it is. And you can just start cruising yeah. through all the clippings. Yeah. You, you can start even... cruising through all of them. You could like, you know, so of course what I do, you know, for fun. I type in murder <laughs> and like, oh, shoot, like a lot it's of a lot, lot of, of stories, stories pop up that happened in the Appleton area that I had never heard. I was like, oh, crap. I probably shouldn't even tell this because now people are going to think like you're an idiot because people probably know about this. But but maybe we have 400 researchers on this podcast that are listening right now that also didn't know that. And you just made their life infinitely easier. It it is it is way easier. I mean, the, the limitation is that it has to be clipped. Mm-hmm. People clip the heck out of that stuff. Well, yeah. If if I had a subscription, I would just go and clip everything so that everybody could see it. Yeah, it's the weird thing. Like like if you're looking for an obituary or a marriage announcement, those are probably clipped. Those are the first things that people are going to go in and clip. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of news stories clipped, and I don't even know why the service lets you do that. Because as soon as, like, if it lets you do that, and then it like save to your account, so you have access to the things that you clipped for your personal quote unquote scrapbook, I'd get that. But the fact that doing that makes it publicly searchable, they're like undermining their business model. model. So I don't understand it. Yeah, try try that if you're looking for. For a newspaper article you cannot find, like Google whatever newspaper clippingsnewspaper.com and you'll get it's you'll get, get the <laughs> you'll get the search bar for that particular newspaper. That's so, awesome. Yeah. So when you're searching it, you're like actually searching through like a Google portal too. Is that pretty Um no, like they've got their own newspapers.com has its own it's search, search engine. Show. Okay. But, okay. I was just curious. Yeah. Yeah. Into the story. Now that we've gotten that out of the out of the way, okay. So this this time we're going to talk about game warden Neil Lefave. Okay. Yeah, um, this is actually a pretty well known case, but it was new to me, and I read about it in Wisconsin Game Warden Magazine. Yes, I did read Wisconsin <laughs> Game Warden Magazine. I'm curious. I guess you work at a library, so that's probably how you got a hold of Wisconsin Game Warden Magazine. It's a pretty good magazine <laughs> if you're interested in Wisconsin Game Warden. That's, that's where I read about it. We're going to get right into it. There's no background to this story at all. We're going to okay. start right out, right out of the gate here. September 24th, 1971. DNR wildlife technician Neil Lefebvre, 32 years old, was in the Sensaba Wildlife Area, northwest of Green Bay. And I don't know if it's Sensaba, but that's how I'm going to say it. Feel free to... It's by, it's by Swamico. <laughs> Swamico, I can say. Sensaba, I don't know. We'll go with that. Anyway, he's working out there in the wildlife area, northwest of Green Bay. He was shot several times in the face by a 22 Remington rifle and also shot by a 30 6 Remington. Coincidentally, it was Lefebvre's birthday. Oh, that's sad. That is sad. 
When Lefebvre did not return home that evening, his wife was immediately concerned. She knew that poachers were unpredictable, and Neil had specifically told her about Brian Hootsong, a paranoid schizophrenic with many poaching violations. Oh, wow. Hootsong was described as a white, weird, skinny, gangly guy (laughs) by other conservation officers. He had a history of mean, angry actions. While fighting with a neighbor boy in grade school, Hussong savagely bashed the youngster's head into a sidewalk. A neighbor rescued the boy, certain that Hussong meant to kill him. While babysitting a niece, Hussong dismembered her doll as she screamed in terror. Acquaintances feared him and said that he once, and if you are sensitive, close your ears for the next few seconds, <laughs> He once ripped the head off a kitten that was purring in his lap at a house party. Oh, my God. Yeah. Monster. Yes. Yes. So he's our prime suspect. Seems like a good suspect. A search was on, and it was actually Lefebvre's wife who made the first discovery. His truck was abandoned on a dead-end road where Lefebvre had been posting signs. Various members of law enforcement and concerned citizens searched the area all night until a spot of sandy soil was found and pushed aside by bow hunter Marvin Olson. Underneath, a belt buckle was found, and then an elbow. Everyone began uncovering the rest of the body with their hands and soon determined that the corpse had no head. The area was roped off, and the state crime lab in Madison was called. Okay, this... this Prime suspect has got to be the guilty party then. Yeah? <laughs> it's got to be, why, right? Why? Because he didn't have a head. And you had just said he supposedly ripped the head off of a cat. Yeah. Well, so that might be his thing. That's like, his thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. That's All my right. prediction. All right. Within 50 feet of the body, they recovered a pen, notepad, sunglasses, several twenty-two shells, a tooth, blood, and what they believed to be brain tissue. The lead investigators were able to determine the types of guns used based on what they found, and they had the same hunch as Mrs. Lefebvre. It was likely a poacher, and they also believed that Hootsong was their suspect. But now you said at the beginning that he was shot with two different kinds of guns, right? He was. So there should be two people, unless, unless the dude's like carrying around two guns with him. Mm. (laughs) we'll get there four days after the murder deputy robert grant found another patch of loose soil 60 feet north of the body and uncovered the head buried face up the head and neck were torn away by several rounds delivered from a 30-06 the remainder of lefebvre's head was viciously chopped off with a sharp instrument uh, so just to be clear, if I if, if you don't understand what how I said that, his head wasn't like cut off with an axe. His head was removed by shooting it off, it off with a gun. gun and then just tearing the rest of it off. Yeah. Like, wow. Now, okay. Now you also mentioned another gun. So is it now are we at three different kinds of guns? No, that was What's this the was thing? the second gun. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Just making sure. Around this time, two different theories were proposed. 
One was that the killer had a long-standing feud with Lefebvre and waited to ambush him, and perhaps this wasn't the first time that he waited to carry out the plan. The other theory was that the killing was from, quote, volcanic rage. Volcanic rage, huh? Yes, that right. was that was the... the Are we th- followed up with the definition of this? <laughs> he thought the killer was cited for some violation, possibly firing his twenty two in an area he's not supposed to, and rather than accept the ticket, instinctively went into a rage and shot the warden on the spot and quickly had to cover it up. So these are the two theories. Either he already disliked disliked the warden and he was waiting to get him when he could, or he got one citation too many and just snapped. Doesn't really make a difference which one's correct. I mean, the guy's dead either way. But they they also said said that um, that they thought possibly this wasn't the first time they had he had waited for him to do this hit. Why yeah. did do you, did you get anything? Are we coming up to anything that explains why they would think that? There's just just ideas of how this might have gone down. I mean, those really are like the two options. If 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 he had a problem with the warden and he knew which area the warden patrolled. Yeah, I suppose. It makes sense that he could hide like in a <laughs> yeah. deer stand or something. Police interviewed all known hunters from the area and every poacher who had ever been sighted by Lefebvre. <laughs> I don't know how many that is, but it sounds like a lot. From there, a shorter list of suspects was made and they tried to administer lie detector tests to people. Many of the men complied with the lie detector tests but Husong declined, and he swore that he had an alibi. He was canning tomatoes with his grandmother that day. <laughs> this is a solid alibi. alibi. Yeah. Two twenty-two shells recovered from the murder site were found to be identical to those previously fired by Husong's gun, says a state crime lab ballistics expert. The police already had fired shells and evidence from prior poaching incidents. Metal slugs recovered from the victim's head were found to have rifling characteristics consistent with having been fired from a rifle similar to Husong's. But 100% identification uh, could not be made because police were unable to locate the rifle. They suspected that the rifle was gone forever. In their words, there's really nothing special about a twenty two rifle. So if you just use it to kill somebody, you'd probably hide it somewhere, but it would never be found. <laughs> they did suspect, however, that the .30-06 used would probably not be thrown away because that is a valuable gun, and even though it will connect you to a murder, it is not something that you would give Jump. up. Okay. I am not a firearms expert, <laughs> so I just have to take their word for this. I mean, I, I know that like 22s are very common. Mm-hmm. I don't really know anything about a 30 out six. So, yeah. uh, but that's that's what they're going on here is that that gun still exists somewhere. Okay. Months after the murder, the district attorney contacted a school friend, Peter Pishek, an assistant attorney general. They believed the answer was to put a wiretap on Husong, which had allegedly never been done in Wisconsin before, except by federal agents. And I don't know one way or the other. So if they say that that police have never done a wiretap, I believe them. Okay. 
The Wisconsin Electronic Surveillance Control Law was patterned after the federal surveillance statute, um, which had gone into effect not long before. This is 71? Yeah. Yeah, this is 71, and the law went into effect in 1969. So it, it had been on the books for about two years, but it hadn't been used yet. Um, part of the reason that it hadn't been used is they weren't really sure how it would hold up in court. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, like, the law says it's okay, but that doesn't mean that a judge is going to agree Agreed that it's okay. It. Okay. They were kind of waiting for the right moment to use it. All right. So they had to have a hearing to get the wiretap approved. Um, at the hearing, a police sergeant stated that up to that point, the means of investigation used in the case... Uh, included a search of 40 to 60 acres of the crime scene. They used a metal detector, scientific laboratory testing, stakeouts, interviews with over 200 people, polygraph exams. They said they had used up all available leads. And really, at this point, they were at a dead end. They were like, this wiretap, we're not just, this isn't just fishing. Like, this is our last chance. The wiretap was approved by Brown County Judge Donald Gleason. And then they were extremely lucky. They put the wiretap on Husong's phone, and only two days after doing it... He had a conversation with somebody talking about the murder? Yes. <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> Husong called his grandmother and told her not to let anybody see the 30 6 that he had left with her. <laughs> she assured him that nobody would ever find it. A search warrant was issued immediately, and police arrived at the grandmother's house. She at first denied knowing anything, but then said she gave it to her daughter and was escorted to a business owned by that daughter. There, they found the .30-06, dismantled into three pieces. Once reassembled and test-fired, the bullets matched the murder bullets, and Husong was arrested. A preliminary hearing was held in January 1972. He was bound over for trial. Uh, In April 1972, the court denied a motion to have the trial moved to a new county. Uh, Various pieces of prejudicial evidence were introduced, including articles in the Green Bay Papers, and even an article that had appeared in a national true crime magazine, Uh, but the judge wouldn't allow them to move it. This this is no more coverage than any other case would get. There's nothing really special about this. Mm Mm-hmm. In fact, they uh, started with a pool of 108 jurors, and they really had no trouble getting it down to the necessary number. It, it, it wasn't it wasn't like all 108 were like, yeah, he's guilty. No yeah. <laughs> so it, it wasn't as hard to, to get a to get a jury as uh, maybe the defense thought. Right. The, the case went to trial, um, and Husung tried to suppress the wiretap evidence based on the claim that there was no probable cause to request such a wiretap, just a hunch by the police. His argument was that pretty much the only thing that they had was that the twenty-two shells were similar to shells that they knew that he had fired. It didn't have a 100% identification match. And the argument there is, if you don't know that those were my shells, you're you, basically just wiretapping somebody you think did it without somebody that you probably did it. You know, and I'm going to get in a lot of trouble here, 
I kind of agree with that defense. I don't know how that that law is written for wiretapping, so maybe what they did was perfectly legal. It seems like if you want to wiretap somebody, you should have some sort of evidence that some pretty strong evidence that they're a, mm-hmm. a real. What's the word I'm looking for? A real. Um, yeah, I'm thinking of that. Trying to think. Of it. Yeah, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. I don't know. Do you have a feeling on that? I you do. Can, yeah. I do. I'll get to it. Okay. You're getting to that point. I'll get right. to it. All right. Okay. So at this point, now the trial judge says, no, I'm not going to suppress it. We're, We're gonna moving the case forward. Uh, the next argument, and this argument sounds really stupid, but it's actually not the worst argument I've ever heard. Okay. They argued that the only thing that they could show was that he owned the 30-06. The 30-06 was only connected to the shooting of the neck to remove the head from the body. The murder weapon was the 22. Okay. So he's like, the best you can do is prove that I shot a dead guy in the neck. neck. You can't mm-hmm. actually prove I was the one who fired the weapon that killed him. Which sounds dumb because it's not like he showed up, found a dead guy in the woods, and, and blasted his head off. Yeah. Like, that's a stupid argument. But technically, I mean, he's right. Again, really, they have nothing connecting to him to actually killing the person. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But of course, like, this wasn't very convincing. Convincing, yeah. Um, and he ultimately, he was found guilty and he was sentenced to life in prison. While leaving the court, he said to the district attorney, I'll kill you, you son of a bitch. (laughs) On the drive to prison, he threatened the officers, too, and said that when he got out, Lefebvre's body would look like child's play compared to what he had in mind for them. Wow. Yeah. So he's he's a little cranky. So after, um, after being convicted, you know, they file appeals, and the appeals are very, very heavily leaning on this wiretap. And he says, you know, this wiretap, it it violates the Fourth Amendment. The Fourth Amendment saying, you know, the government cannot seize things from you. And basically listening on your conversation, you're like stealing things from me without my permission. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Wisconsin Supreme Court basically said, yeah, we're not going to we're not going to go along with that. They said the state law is basically written identically to the federal law. You know, some words changed to make right. it fit state, but it's basically the same thing. And at this point, the federal law had been challenged up to the Supreme Court four or five times and had been held up every time. So they're like, if the state or if the U.S. Supreme Court says this is okay, we on the state level are not, not going to disagree. What what would happen? You'd you'd re-argue it up to the Supreme Court, and they're just going to be like, look. <laughs> look, we've already done, been through this. <laughs> yeah. And they said that even the, the Wisconsin law was stricter than the federal law because the federal law allowed you to kind of re-up every so often, being like, okay, I didn't get what I'm looking for. Can you extend this? The Wisconsin law had a maximum 30 days, and if you didn't get it after 30 days, you're done. Mm-hmm. So they're like, if, if anything, our law is better. 
So that didn't work. So that is oh, but as far as as far as my opinion goes, I think this is really sketchy. Yeah, I think this is really sketchy. Like, I don't have the actual forensic evidence. I don't know how close these twenty-two markings are, and that to me would make the difference. Like, if it's to the point where they're like, eh, "This looks like it could be from the same gun," or "This is from the same mm-hmm. gun," that to me would make the difference because. With a twenty-two being so common, if it's like, well, this could be maybe the same gun, well, yeah, then it could be maybe a hundred other guns. So that to me is not a great argument. But I don't I don't have the lab evidence. So I don't have a strong opinion one way or the other without knowing what they're using to make that connection. Right. And but I think we would both agree that Based on what they presented, this guy probably did do this. But oh, whether yeah. whether he should have been, whether the evidence shown showed it enough that he was guilty or that they should have been able to wiretap him, is questionable. I think, That's I the think question the wire, part, I, right? Of it. I think the wiretap is, like I said, it's a bit of a stretch. Again, it comes down to it comes down to the markings on the on the bullets or the shells or whatever, and. Um, and I don't know because mm-hmm. I don't I don't have that, so I don't know what they're going off of. If it's like remarkably similar, I could see that being valid for the judge. I don't know, right. and uh, and and frankly, I I don't know that I'm supposed to say this. Frankly, I I think generally speaking, judges tend to favor law enforcement at least during the investigation part of it. I mean, if you go and you you put on a hearing and you say, this is why we need a wiretap, the judge is probably going to okay it. Yeah. More often than not, the judge is probably going to okay it because if you've gone to that point, unless you've, you're really reaching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I bet you it was a lot, it took a lot more to get that judge to sign off on it at this point in time because it had never been done. And like today, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure the states just like yeah, whatever. We'll just sign off and you do your wiretap. I don't even know how often they use wiretaps. I don't either. But I mean, now know. now with cell phones, I don't even know if you can. Yeah. But um, well, whatever but it, that. New but it's not. Thing su- is. It's not like a super common thing. Uh, so remember, as he's leaving the court and hauled off to prison, uh, he makes a series of threats. Now, I don't know how common that is. I suspect it's not rare. Mm-hmm. I have to assume that there are people who get convicted of murder and they're not happy about that and they say things. Right. Like, that's probably not... This guy's not the, probably not the first or the last guy to say, I'm going to kill you <laughs> after being sent to life in prison. However, this guy is a little different in that he managed to escape from prison. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yes. Uh, so he's in prison for about nine years. Um, and then he's on good behavior. So he gets transferred to a less secure prison um, at Fox Lake, which uh, we don't have Jason here because Jason could tell us all about Fox, <laughs> Fox Lake. Lake. Yeah. And uh, on August 28th, 1981, his Sheboygan girlfriend, Mary Conrad, drove to the prison, threw bolt cutters over the fence, and then 
he used the bolt cutters to get out of the the, the, the outside yeah, the outside fence. area, and she was waiting in a car outside to pick him up. That sounds like one of the easiest prison breaks I've ever heard in my life, and I can't believe it worked. I can't believe it worked either. <laughs> I can't believe it worked either because, like, it's – I don't know how they like, – because they had to communicate this through letter or something to yeah. know when this was going to go down. Uh, so somebody wasn't doing their job there. <laughs> but whatever. It worked. And that night, the people who had investigated and convicted him were not sleeping very well. <laughs> A police officer in Hayward, which if you know Wisconsin, is nowhere near here, nowhere near Green Bay, pulled them over on a routine traffic stop. Husong punched the officer in the face and then drove over another officer's foot as he sped away in his girlfriend's car. The girlfriend ended up getting a two-year prison sentence for her role in the escape. She at first gave a fake name and said that she picked him up as a hitchhiker, but later admitted the truth. Husong, who apparently didn't care about his girlfriend all that that much, much. (laughs) (laughs) drove off and later ditched the vehicle and fled into a forest and then stole another vehicle a week later in Chippewa County. Wow. He, He abandoned that vehicle at a restaurant in Menominee, Michigan, another week later. Later. He's getting around. Yeah, he's really getting around. He remained on the run for 104 days until eventually it was found that he was hiding in a shack in a forest on the Stockbridge Muncie Reservation in Shano County. Husong refused to surrender when law enforcement showed up, and after a short standoff, he was killed on sight. His body was brought to the Shano Hospital for an official pronouncement, but he was already dead. At this point, and I don't think I was very clear about his age early on. Lefebvre at the time of his death was 32. Okay. Husong at the time of the murder was only 21. Okay. Which means now, after being in prison for 10 years, he's now dead at 31 years old. Wow. So this guy... This guy lived a short, not-so-great life. No. Yeah, 31 years, and he spent 10 of them in prison. Yeah. So that, that sucks. And how, how long on, on the run, basically? 104 days. Yeah. Yeah. Which I guess isn't a huge amount of time, but it's long enough. So. In 1972, right after the murder, a large granite monument honoring Lefebvre was put up at the wildlife area by his wife. From $1,200 in donations that were connected collected at the funeral... She said, I was living from paycheck to paycheck, like a lot of people were, but I put that monument there with the money that we received. In February 2020, a nearby boat ramp was named the Neil Lefebvre Boat Launch after a push from his daughter, who had only been an infant when he was killed. That's nice. Yeah. That is quite a story, man. Like, this is go goes back to another one of those stories that... Would you have ever imagined this happened? I mean, what is this, 45 minutes away from us right now, probably? Probably not even. Yeah. That's a crazy story. Yeah. And man, when he was on the run, he really got around. Yeah, like I say, if you if you Google Neil Lefebvre, like, this isn't like some secret story right. I unearthed. It's, it's very easy to find. But it was new to me. Yeah. Cool. 
Well, I think that was that was another good one. Yeah. Yeah, unearthed another good one. And yes. now that Gavin has an unlimited repository of news articles, we yes. will have plenty more coming. So Oh awesome. yeah. Oh yeah. We have plenty more coming. Do you got anything else you want to add to this episode before we move on or, um, or close her out for the day? No, I've got I mean I got a few short notes at the end here. Um Neil Lefebvre's widow. Um, did remarry, and as of a couple of years ago, she was still alive. Oh wow! Um, I assume she still is. The district attorney involved was later promoted—well, not promoted, I guess—elected <laughs> to, to district judge in Brown County Court. Uh, he is still alive. Uh, and what became of Mary Conrad, the Sheboygan girlfriend who helped in the prison? I was escape? actually going to ask that. I don't you know. know. You don't know. You I can't don't find know it. where she is. Uh, for all I know, she is very much still alive, but I don't know her current whereabouts. You could not find her. No. Interesting. So, all right. Well, with that, I guess we can wrap this one up. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in to Fox City's Murder and Mayhem. Join us in two weeks for another exciting episode of Murder and Mayhem. <laughs>